Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg, here trying and failing to contain my excitement at the thought of actually seeing real humans in the extremely near future. Obviously, all the responsible socialising terms and conditions apply. I went a little overboard with the guests this week. My chats went for so long I had to edit them down to fit into one show. When Trixie's boyfriend dumps her just after Valentine's Day, she's left with a delicious meal and a strong sense of just how much better the single life really is. She and her friends make a pact to keep things simple and single as part of the Broken Heart Brigade. But will love still find a way to seep in through the cracks? Matilda Dixon-Smith started her enjoyably rumpy, light-hearted, serialised rom-com as a way to fend off boredom and bring cheer to friends during a lockdown. With a recent funding win and a growing group of loyal subscribers, the Broken Heart Brigade is here to stay. Matilda joins me later in the hour to talk about Trixie and the Broken Heart Brigade. But soon, young Esme grows up in the scriptorium, a converted shed in Oxford where her father and other editors are gathering the entries for the first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary, an endeavour that took 70 years to complete and will always be evolving. But Esme is interested in the slips of paper with words that have been lost or discarded. Over time, she realises why. Women's experiences don't seem to have the same importance. So Esme starts to gather these words for a dictionary of her own, the Dictionary of Lost Words. This novel by Pip Williams draws on a vast amount of research and a perspective on how important words are in helping to give people a place in the world or to keep them out of it. That's all coming up on Backstory. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Some words are more important than others. I learned this growing up in the scriptorium, but it took me a long time to understand why. Pip Williams' novel, The Dictionary of Lost Words, follows young Esme as she grows up in the scriptorium, a converted shed in Oxford where her father and other editors are gathering the entries for the first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary. But Esme is interested in the slips of paper with words that have been lost or discarded. Over time, she realises that women's experiences don't seem to have the same importance and she starts gathering them for her own dictionary of lost words. Author Pip Williams joined me to discuss the book and the incredible word nerdy research that went into it. Pip Williams, welcome to Backstory. Oh, it's lovely to be here, Mel. Now, your book is is quite a kind of delightful insight into the compilation of the first Oxford English Dictionary. Up until that point, there had only been Dr. Samuel's Dictionary or Samuel Johnson's Dictionary, uh, which was a somewhat interesting document, but not necessarily a very complete one. But this story takes a very different angle on how the dictionary has been compiled and what words 
might have been missed out. Can you explain a little bit about the book? Yeah, sure. Um, well, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, it, it does take a slightly different perspective to the one that history has given us. Um, history records so much about the development of the first Oxford English Dictionary because it really was an extraordinary endeavour. I liken it to um, trying to map the human genome, actually. It was a project that took 70 years um, to complete. They originally thought it might take 10. Um, they they set out wanting to define every single word in the English language, including words that were no longer in use. Um, so it was extremely ambitious. Um, and history tells us all about the, the men who um, participated in this endeavour. And um, I was particularly... Uh, drawn to the story after I read Simon Winchester's The Surgeon of Crowthorn, which is a, a lovely small little book about the relationship between uh, one of the editors of the Oxford English Dictionary and one of the volunteers who sent in uh, words and how they'd been used in various literature. Um, but what I came away with was, a, was an understanding that it was a very male endeavour. So all the editors were men, all of the lexicographers were men, most of the assistants were men, and very importantly, and we're, we're sort of thinking about Victorian times pre-20th century when this started, most of the literature that they referred to to define the words was written by men. And a word did not get into the dictionary unless it had been written down. So it had to have a textual history. And I was just struck by this. Um, I, I had no plans of writing a book about it. I just was curious. Uh, and that's where it started for me. So it is. It's really a book that's given me pause because uh, the the central character of the story is a little girl uh, at the beginning, and she starts to gather. Her name is Esme, um, and she starts to gather together all of these words that are being discarded. That that you know she feels has some meaning for her, um, and that's sort of really where you start to to get a sense of. Uh, you know, of the people or of the words that are not included in the dictionary. There's a sort of pivotal scene where, uh, you know, Esme's father is trying to explain to her why her uh the, the, the maid that looks after her, why, why it's okay for the maid to be in, quote, service, but not for Esme to be in service. Um, and also the, the discovery of the word bond maid uh, and that getting thrown away. So I really want to discuss this because this kind of sets things up for later on in the book. Um, I don't want to give away too much of your wonderful storyline. Um, but do you talk a little bit about you know, why you decided to kind of ground things in this particular um, way, not just looking at, at kind of gender, but also class. Sure. Um, well, first of all, the word bondmaid, which means slave girl, is is actually what, what started me writing. So um, I told you I was interested just in the general gendered nature of the dictionary, and I did a little bit of reading for my own benefit. And I kept coming across this lovely little anecdote about the only word that was lost from the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, and that was the word bondmaid. And it was meant to be in the volume of A and B words, but it just wasn't. And 
uh, James Murray, who was the editor at the time, got a letter from someone in the general public asking why Bond Maid wasn't in the dictionary. And that was the first he knew of it. And it literally got lost on the way from the scriptorium where they uh, gathered all the words together and defined them and the Oxford University Press where they produced the dictionary. And because it was never explained, I decided that this was a beautiful way to um, to start my story. And so I have my fictional character, Esme, find the word bond made, which was written on a slip of paper, and rather than giving it back, she keeps it. And so I've now yeah. explained <laughs> for everyone in history how the word bond made went missing. Um, but for me, uh, that was just the beginning, and I realised that lots of words would have gone missing but the other thing that I realised was words um, mean different things to different people. And um, while I was initially interested in the difference between the meaning of words for men and women, um, I, I then realised that, of course, there are, you know, millions of words in our language um, that also have a class distinction. And the scene that you're talking about is, is when Esme's father explains to her that um, serve, being in service is a positive thing for someone like Lizzie, who is a um, an uneducated, illiterate uh, young girl. Um, but being in service for an educated middle class girl would be a very negative thing. Um, so there we have a word that um, that embodies a whole lot of positive things for somebody who is living perhaps in abject poverty because service is a job, uh, whereas for somebody who comes from a different class, a, a, an upper class or a middle class, being in service would be a fall from grace. So there we have a word that just has completely different meanings for do, two different types of people. Um, and that, I, I suppose, is an example of what uh, the book explores throughout is um, can we really rely on the meanings that are defined by men or words that are defined by men? Can we rely on those meanings to explain what life life experience is for for women or for people um, from a different class or a different cultural background? Um, that's, I suppose, the fundamental theme running through the book. This book is, it's obviously uh, set in a very different time from ours. It leads into the sort of suffrage period or the suffragette period where uh, women are trying to attain basic um, voting rights. Mm -hmm. uh, so really, and and we know obviously that struggle was itself a kind of class-based um you know, struggle, those in, you know, there was a moment in time when women of different classes sort of banded together a little bit, um, but mostly it was led by uh, upper-class women. Um, so it was a really interesting time. I, I think, though, in a lot of ways this story has so much relevance for now because we are looking at how language can help us to really define culture and define our ideas about things like gender, for example, or things uh, like the way uh, words are appropriated for particular uses or challenging um, the presumed use or the gendered uses of terms. Was that in the back of your mind when you were putting this uh, this book together? Oh, Mel, there's, there is so much to unpack there. And um, I have to admit that right at the beginning, none of that was in my mind. Right at the beginning, I just wanted to uh, answer a simple question for myself. 
which was do words mean different things to men and women? It was that simple. But once I started um, and once I started delving into the history, I realised that this dictionary was developed at a really momentous time in in Western history, particularly the history of of the UK. Um, As you said, it coincides um, and tracks parallel to the suffrage movement. And once I started looking into the suffrage movement, uh, I learnt so much. There were so many things I didn't realise about the suffrage movement in the UK in particular. Um, And one of those things was the class the sort of the class divide in the suffrage movement. Um, it was also, I also learned about how suffragettes came about and how that word came about. So that word is a wonderful example of a word that has changed its meaning over time. It was actually an insult to the women who were being more militant in their um, in their activities around suffrage. And in fact, the suffragists, the, the women who did not approve of the militancy um, they they did not want to call themselves suffragettes, um, and it was newspaper men and politicians who were calling these these women who were speaking out too loudly and uh, making a nuisance of themselves. They were you know little girls acting up essentially. Um, it was newspaper men who'd coined the term suffragette as a diminutive to put them down to say that they weren't as good as the real suffragists. Um, and of course, Emmeline Pankhurst took on that word and she appropriated it and called their journal the suffragette. And we now understand that word differently because of the way the women um, appropriated this this insult. Um, but there was a difference between the suffragettes and the suffragists. Um, Emmeline Pankhurst's suffragettes, um, in the end, they were willing to compromise the vote um, and who got to vote. Uh, and they their compromise was that women with education and property uh, and older women uh, perhaps should get the vote first, um, whereas the suffragists were not willing to compromise on that. For them, they wanted all women to have the vote regardless of property or um, education. Um, and so that was one of the differences between the two groups of women fighting for the vote. The suffragists were also, um, they, they also had a, I suppose, a, um, social justice agenda, um, and they were more likely to be also working for the rights of children um, and for the rights of people living in poverty. Um, so their agenda was a bit broader. Um, but it's just I found these um, I found this history so fascinating, and and because words were involved, this word suffragette and suffragist, and and the term universal suffrage, which I discovered meant. Um, it meant that everyone gets to vote regardless of cultural background or race or um, property ownership or income, but it didn't include women. <laughs> so the word yeah. universal was also a really problematic word because it, it obviously didn't mean what, what we think it means. Um, and that was the, you know, that was the uh, suffrage fight before women's suffrage came along. But um, all of this history I found so fascinating and when I realised it tracked so beautifully alongside the development of the Oxford English Dictionary, it was impossible to ignore it uh, and so it, it, um, it, it is woven throughout this story as well. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm joined today by Pip Williams, author of The Dictionary of Lost Words. 
I am really intrigued by, uh, you know, the research that you did for this book. Uh, I guess a lot of uh, research focus has obviously gone into the development of the dictionary itself, but very much into the suffrage movement. But you do find these delightful sort of uh, sources for words. So I feel as though there's been quite a lot of archival research that's gone into it that you've maybe trawled through Trove or similar. Tell me about uh, the process of researching a, a historical fiction Firstly, but also something that really requires you to get into the minutiae of language. Yeah. Um, so my background is actually as a social scientist. So I have a research background, I suppose, and I, I do love it. Um, and I think lots of uh, a lot of novelists would say you have to be careful not to let the research take over from the writing. Um, but I really did love the research, and I I had um, I had a few. Uh, big research um, moments, and so the first was I I visited the um, South Australian State Library, and they have the most beautiful set of first edition Oxford English Dictionary volumes. Um, and I I actually read through these dictionaries. Obviously, I didn't read every word, but I browsed through the words because the Oxford English Dictionary is actually a history book. Um, <clears throat> it doesn't just give you the meaning, the contemporary meaning of a word. It it gives you the meaning of a word going back through history, right to the very first textual um, example of that word. And so you can see how words have changed over time, um, and you can also see the the way language has changed over the time. Time because it provides quotes for um, all of the different meanings uh, throughout history. Um, so that was that was my first most delightful um, research arm, I suppose, is actually referring to the dictionaries. And I, I came across some fantastic words uh, that are all obsolete these days, but you know that I would jot down in my notebooks, and occasionally some of them will come up in the book, but mostly they don't. Um, I also had the privilege of going to um, Oxford twice, so once at the beginning of the project and once right at the end, um, and I was given wonderful access to the archives at Oxford University Press. And so these included the Oxford English Dictionary ar archives, and so I actually got to handle boxes and boxes of slips mm. of paper and I could check whether some of these slips had actually made it into the dictionary, and I was only interested in the first edition. A lot of words that didn't make it into the first edition, because they kept the slips, um, they could actually include them in the second edi edition, which was published in uh, 1989, and they are still adding to the dictionary every day. So some words that might have been excluded from that first dictionary have since become um, more popular or or research has been done to show that they are m much more valid words and so they are now included. But my focus was that first dictionary. Um, and going to the archives meant that I could look at the original slips, which was just magical for anyone who's interested <laughs> in history. For me and for Esme, uh, my character, words are tangible. And this is the difference, I suppose, between most of us where words words are something that can be caught on the air and just sort of um, blown away. But for Esme, words were tangible things. They were things she could hold um, because they were all written on slips. Every single word in the dictionary has been written on a slip of paper um, and stored in the scriptorium uh, where my story is set. And they are now stored at the Oxford University Press. 
in the archives and and not only could I I handle and view these slips, many of which never made it into the dictionary, so I, I did get to see words that didn't make it, um, but I can also have a look at the proof pages of the dictionary. And they're fascinating because um, they would they would print um, two, maybe three proof pages before they printed the final dictionary page. And I can see words that almost made it into the dictionary and then were crossed out at the last minute, um, sometimes with a comment about why, but often not, just with the word excise next to it. Um, were there any that, that particularly grabbed you that you collected, much like Esme? Yes. Um, so there's one word in particular which always fascinated me. It's the word literately. Um, and I use it because I I understand this word and I was thinking, why do I understand this word if it was not in the dictionary? Um, and I understand it because it makes sense. So literately just means learnedly. It means you've written something literately. You've written it well, essentially. Um, uh, and I couldn't understand why it would be excluded from the dictionary and apparently it was, ex it was found, uh, I think, back in the 17th century, uh, in a novel written by a woman, um, and it was the only example of how it would, had been used, even though it made perfect sense. Um, and so because it was only a single example, it didn't tick all of the boxes for inclusion in the dictionary because it didn't have much of a history. However, <laughs> there are so many other words that do make it in, which also only had a single example of use. Um, and one of the words that I, I talk about sort of against literately is this, this word called literata. Um, and the literata is like a female, uh, a learned female. And, and the thing that strikes me about this word, it was only used, it was used by Coleridge um, just once. They only had the one example, but he got five lines in the first dictionary. Um, and our female author was excised. Um, and I know this is completely picking and choosing, cherry-picking your evidence. I'm per perfectly aware of that. <laughs> but even so, I find it an interesting story because literata means a learned lady. <laughs> and I've always been curious about why we need to be differentiated from the literati who are just learned people. For me, I think the, the modern um, lesson there is around culture um, so we have indigenous cultures around the world whose, whose words are being lost daily. I mean, if they haven't already been lost completely, um, they are continuing to be lost. And when you lose, when you lose the words that have been around for, um, generations, sometimes centuries, millennia, um, when you lose those words, you do lose connection to the meaning that those words had for um, the culture of people, for an understanding of their connection to land or to kin. Um, and and it is a terrible loss for uh, those groups of people to not be able to um, share their worldview in their language. Um, and, and I think this is happening obviously around Australia but also around the world. Um, Esme, in, in my novel but also people in real life, they come to find that um, the language that is defined for them doesn't always uh, isn't always powerful enough to explain their experience or to explain um, 
their their emotion or or to explain the importance of something to them. And I think language evolves really well when we try to listen to um, how we might use words differently um, to understand a different group of people. That's uh, such a wonderful note uh, to end on, uh, Pip Williams. Thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. Oh, it was a huge pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mel. That was author Pip Williams. Her book, The Dictionary of Lost Words, is out now. Up next, a serialised rom-com that will help you escape isolation. Matilda Dixon-Smith will join us to talk about the Broken Heart Brigade. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. When Trixie's boyfriend dumps her just after Valentine's Day, she is left with a delicious meal and a strong sense of just how much better the single life really is. She and her friends make a pact to keep things simple and single as part of the Broken Heart Brigade. But will love still find a way to seep in through the cracks? Matilda Dixon-Smith started her enjoyably rompy, light-hearted, serialised rom-com as a way to fend off boredom and bring cheer to friends during lockdown. With a recent funding win and a growing group of loyal subscribers, the Broken Heart Brigade is here to stay. I spoke with Matilda about her series and what inspired it. Matilda Dixon-Smith, welcome to Backstory. Hi. <laughs> it, it feels very strange because we're actually quite good friends um, to be talking to you in this kind of more professional capacity, but I am very delighted to be able to introduce uh, this particular uh, interview because I have been loving what you're doing and I would love you to talk a little bit about what it's like to be a heartbreaker. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, it is you know, it's a bit, it's a bit strange to be even talking about the Broken Heart Brigade because it sort of started as just a funny little thing that I wanted to do almost just for myself and anyone who was bored. As soon as the coronavirus shutdown looked like it was going to happen and I'm an academic like you are, Melissa, at, at uni and I thought, at that stage, we weren't sure if we would still be working. And I thought, well, if I'm going to have to have months of potentially not doing any work or doing very little work and being at home all the time, I'm going to need something to do. And I had been thinking about, well, about Dickens and about Austen because we'd been watching a lot of kind of cosy um, bonnet dramas at home. Uh, because I follow along with the Darcy Wars hashtag on Twitter where they rewatch, you know, all of the different interpretations of Mr. Darcy and pick the best one. Uh, and so we've been watching all of those and we've been watching Elizabeth Gaskell's North and South and all these things. And, you know, I was thinking about how originally they were serialised in newspapers and periodicals before they were compiled together to become novels that we read now as one big thing. And I thought wouldn't that be the perfect thing for the moment when we're all kind of bored and we might rush to finish a book and then go, okay, I'll finish that really quickly. I'm I'm a bit bored now. Wouldn't it be nice to have the equivalent of appointment television, but 
for a book or a written story. So I thought, well, it has to be something fun and nice that we want to read. And obviously that's a rom-com and I love rom-coms and I love reading them and I love writing them. And that's how Broken Heart Brigade started, really. I just thought, you know, it would be a bit of fun to have something, you know, a story that progressed once a week and it came into your inbox, just zoomed in there, just like a tiny letter or another e-newsletter. But instead of being a, you know, a bit of reflective non-fiction or something like that, it was actually just a new instalment of a rom-com. It's been really delightful to watch the evolution of this because it's happened quite quickly. Really, you literally started this since, uh, you know, we first really went into lockdown. And I found it um, such a revelation what, you know, what you can actually do uh, with a form like this. Can you talk a little bit about the story as it's evolved? Because uh, I've become quite attached to the characters. Um Obviously, one in particular, Trixie. Yeah. Uh, tell us about Trixie particularly. I love Trixie. So Trixie's, I guess, the main the main character and Trixie's just a, she, you know, she's a regular Melbourne girl via Sydney. I'm a Melbourne girl via Sydney and I can't, <laughs> I can't keep <laughs> from writing women who come from Melbourne but originated in Sydney Uh, and she you know has a solid group of of friends and you know they're big in the queer Melbourne scene and uh, she had a long-term boyfriend who was you know not a very nice guy and the story begins with them breaking up hence Broken Heart Brigade and she and all her friends decide you know there's nothing worse than being brokenhearted, so let's not do that. Let's just embrace being single and having a good time and let's just not be brokenhearted and not do long-term monogamy again. And so that's kind of what what Trixie is aiming for. (laughs) But we'll see if she actually does that. And I think there's going to be a a few uh, problems along the road to uh, you know, continued single life for Trixie. The first one's already come up. There's a been a bit of a cute little interaction with a with a single mum in her made up Kensington bookstore that she works in. <laughs> I feel like um, I don't want to give away too much because one of the most delightful elements of this series is is that kind of excitement about what's going to be in the next episode what's going to be in the next installment it's sort of like that same feeling I used to get when we still occasionally got letters from friends Mm. Um, and I still sometimes will will have a friend just send me one uh, which you know it's beautiful more often we'll get perhaps a card at the most Uh, but this kind of has that feeling where I'm like what will be in it and I've waited (laughs) for it for this week which a week now seems like a, an incredibly long amount of time to wait for, you know, the next instalment of something um, that we want to to know that furthers a plot. Uh, it's, you know, we're so used to instant um, mm. now. What's it been like for you to kind of, because um, for you it is every week, you are coming up with new storylines. What do you feel it, it's been like to sort of measure things out in this way? It has, I mean, it has been kind of 
it's been an interesting challenge and I think I've sort of I've definitely slowed down a bit in my ability to pump it out at the start I was really keen to kind of get the story to a certain point where we had met all the important people we knew what was going to happen well that you know like what the trajectory of the story was going to be in a broad sense and you know I wanted a strong sense of place and a strong sense of I guess, just theme and voice. And and I wanted to get that consistency of voice across a couple of letters because it's hard when you, from for me and for the reader to dip in and out of something once a week, you want to make sure that you're dipping back in and it is actually the same thing again, the same characters, the same tone and that kind of thing. And so I really, I was very keen to make sure that that was happening and I kind of bashed through the first few and now I feel like I'm being a lot more careful because I know a few points that I want to hit further down the road but I don't want to get there too quickly and run out of steam or you know have it feel like it's going too fast and you don't get to spend enough time with the characters or enough time in the place or enough time with a certain situation particularly because it does come into your inbox once a week and you don't want to feel, you know, like too much is happening and you can't, and, and that's a bit yeah, spooky. You, you, you want the cliffhangers as well. Yeah. But I also don't show. want to feel ripped off. I don't want people to feel like they read an, an episode and or, you know, like an installment and they were like, oh, wow, what a rip-off. I wish something more had happened. <laughs> I don't think there's any chance that that's going to be the case. You've done a very nice job. Um, I just, I, I, this is a show about craft. So, so I'm you talking about, um, you know, hitting certain points and uh, and how you're, uh, you want to sort of, uh, you know, get a sense of the world that you've created and the tonality of that world. But I am really intrigued about how you are, how you're planning this out and how you're working through it because you're writing in a way that uh, we don't often get to see as much. Uh, We usually see the finished product of a book, Mm. which has already gone through many, many hands uh, (laughs) and many, many drafts, but you don't have the luxury of that that type of experience. You haven't pre-written this. It's really important to say that this really is something that you started um, and then immediately started sending out. So, So tell me a little bit about the process that goes on behind the scenes. Yeah, well, I have tried to keep it as week by week as possible because I think it's important that it is a little bit responsive to what's happening around us. Um, You know, I want it to be gentler in weeks where we might need a bit of a bit something a bit gentle, and you know, I want it to be a little bit responsive to to the world around us in the sense of like, oh, if it feels like we've all got a bit of cabin fever, maybe Trixie needs to actually go somewhere. Like I realised for the first three episodes or first three instalments, she hadn't left her house (laughs) because I hadn't left my house. And I went, oh, gosh, she's got to go somewhere. I better get her to leave her house. Um, Yeah, I remember outside. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, um, I I do like I want it to have that kind of spontaneity. I don't want to pre-write a lot of it and then just release the installments so that has meant that I have to be on the ball a bit but it also means that I have that yeah I don't have the kind of luxury of having it all be edited or having the story edited on a broader structural level so I mean firstly I'm editing it myself I mean my partner tends to look at it 
for some typos, but he's a physicist. So, you know, he will pick up some typos, but not all. And then someone will let me know, usually, if there's something in there that I can fix on the copy that goes up online. But yeah, it is, I realized probably after I had decided that I thought it was a great idea, how much of a risk it was to me as a writer to put out something that wasn't being edited in such a long format. Because that's really unusual. (laughs) Um, But it's been fun. It's a nice challenge. And I mean, I'm quite lucky because I come from a trade editorial background. I'm lucky that my copy is really clean. And I tend to be a writer who doesn't do a lot of drafts. So I, you know, I mean, hopefully it's readable at the very least. And that's, that's kind of aim. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to author Matilda Dixon-Smith, my friend who has written uh, a wonderful serialised rom-com, The Broken Heart Brigade, which comes to your inbox uh, every week uh, and has been one of the great delights of this otherwise extremely weird and difficult time. Uh, so thank you so much for, for what you've been doing, Matilda. Um, I would love you to give people a little bit of a taste of the Broken Heart Brigade and Trixie and her antics because, you know, it is a, a rom-com and there are some some spicy bits in it, um, which I'm very much looking forward to reading more of. What do you have uh, to kind of give us a little bit of a taste uh, for those who who could be interested in signing up? Sure. So this is from the the most the most recent uh, instalment. So a new one will be coming out today, actually. But this is the instalment before that. Uh, so Trixie works in a bookshop in Kensington, and she had a. Um, a single mother, Natalie, come in for some help with her son and Natalie returns later on in the evening to thank Trixie and ends up staying past closing time. And this is where we are now. Uh, So should I give it a go? Please do. Go right ahead. All righty. So it wasn't until well after nightfall, the string lights hanging under the awnings on Car Street just lighting the windows, that Trixie realised it was well past closing. And yet she and Natalie were still sitting together, chatting quietly and sipping warm white wine from coffee mugs. Trixie perched on the counter, her legs dangling down close to Natalie's knees, which was squashed up against her stomach as she balanced on a rickety old bar stool. Sabine had never re-emerged from her closing time smoko in the back courtyard, Trixie guessed she must have left via the side gate, possibly still in a huff. The wine was dreadful, and the shop was cold and shadowy without the sun in the windows. Still, no matter how many times Trixie checked on Natalie, she seemed determined to stay there, drinking the bad wine and knocking her knees against Trixie's shins. It turned out Natalie was, like Trixie, nearly single, She had left a large house and a bad-tempered partner, Steve, on the south side for a cramped but safe apartment in Kensington, one that, in her words, was all hers at last. Though everything was much harder alone and Natalie was really truly alone as her family farmed sugarcane up past Cairns and all their friends in Elstonwick had signed up with Steve in the split, Natalie preferred it to the constant tension of life with her ex. He never, he didn't, 
I just couldn't stay there, she told Trixie, chewing on the lip of her mug and looking distant again. Of course, Trixie agreed, and though she wished she could ask Natalie more, she knew she mustn't. But Natalie could talk at length about Ollie, who was just recently two years old and appeared to be Natalie's primary reason for motoring along. along. She unloaded a raft of toddler stories on Trixie, beaming each time she mentioned his name. And though Trixie had never been much of a kid person herself, she made sure to laugh and gasp in all the right places. You're being very kind to a silly, doting mum, Natalie observed at the end of a story about Ollie's recent antics at the local GP's office. He seems like a gem, Trixie said, and Natalie beamed again. He really is, she sighed. But then I guess every mother would say that, Trixie laughed. Probably. (laughs) I should stop telling you baby stories. Well, Trixie said, reaching out to retrieve Natalie's empty mug, I'd just like to hear more about you. I'm sure there's lots you haven't told me about yourself. Natalie waved a hand at Trixie. Oh, I'm boring. I'm just a boring old mum now. You're hardly old, Trixie said. And as she did, she realised it was absolutely impossible to tell exactly how old Natalie was. Her lean, fit body appeared to belong to a young woman or athlete, for Trixie couldn't imagine how anyone else could get that kind of definition on their arms. But the crinkles around her eyes and mouth were perhaps the signs of graceful ageing. Thank you so much. That's uh, a nice little interlude um, in our busy lives uh, (laughs) to to what will happen um, perhaps between uh, Trixie and Natalie. We'll soon find out. I would very much recommend um, people signing up to to get a, a sense of how the, the story builds up. Quite apart from anything else, um, the enjoyment of actually uh, going through the story, what I really love about this is it sort of shows how you build up a story. I'm feeling as though I'm getting a little bit of a masterclass in writing rom-com um, or in writing a, a book that's very plot-driven and that uses a lot of techniques to kind of keep an audience engaged with characters and with the plot as it moves uh, along. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I can already, just within that one sort of snippet, there's a lot of dialogue, there's a a lot of sort of information given in that form. Are there little tricks that you could share for people who maybe want to work in writing um, a particular form of writing like this, uh, a plot-driven book? Yeah, I mean, I can't claim to be an expert on rom-com in any way other than that I just read and watch a lot of it. Um, But I have some favourites. I mean, I love Sophie Kinsella. I've loved everything that Zoe Foster Blake has written. Like her Wrong Girl book was The Wrong Girl was one of my favourites that I read. And um, Sophie Kinsella's books are all fantastic, particularly her most recent one, which is called, I think it's called You Owe Me One. Um, oh no, I owe you one. And that's a fantastic one that's really influenced a lot of the way that I've been bringing kind of family and friends into this story. Uh, and I also love Marianne Keyes and particularly her This Charming Man book and the way she kind of balances some more serious elements of just life and real life into kind of the fun fluffiness of rom-com. I think that one of the things about rom-com, and I was talking about this with my friend Mel Campbell, who's also a rom-com writer and a great one, is the idea that you can't escape the fact that there are genre conventions there. And I think the mistake that lots of people try to make when they're writing or producing a rom-com is that they do try to subvert 
the conventions or no, not subvert them, but avoid the conventions. So they say, okay, I'm going to write a rom-com, but it's not going to be like your average rom-com. And it's like, but the, the form is what works and what we love. The idea is, what do you do with that form? And I think that's the thing I really love about the best rom-coms is that they really embrace and celebrate the fact that there are genre conventions and tropes that we all really enjoy. It's just what do they do with them that is the interesting part. How do they tell that story from within those genre conventions in a way that's going to grab us and not make us think, oh, I've heard this one 20 times before. Yeah, I mean, there's almost <laughs> like this, uh, you know, a sense of um, the need to defy it in order to make something of value. I, I heard um, recently an, an interview with uh, Ursula Le Guin, who's obviously passed away, um, talking about this very thing, the idea that that somehow genre is not a worthy form of literature, uh, which she thought was absolutely ludicrous. Um, and I have to agree, I think good writing is good writing, uh, you know, where do you think that sort of way of looking at things comes from? Uh, well, I think it depends on the form, but I think certainly with rom-com, it's the audience and the uh, people who write it. You know, it's a, traditionally a women's genre and women's writing is derided in literature, in the canon, everywhere. So, you know, uh, any any form of writing that, pays particular attention to concerns that women have or the lives that women lead is something that we tend not to pay that much attention to or, you know, we tend to think is a little bit less worthy. And, you know, that's largely to do with the kinds of critics that will look at that form or look at the books that we're producing or the films that we're producing if they're male critics they might be less interested in the same way that if a whole group of white critics are looking at a piece of work from somebody who's a person of colour about the life of somebody who's a person of colour, they might think that it's a little bit less worthy because they don't understand it as much or they don't think it's as, you know, relevant to them. But, you know, I think that, yeah, good writing is good writing. But the other thing about the rom-com form that, is that it appeals to a large audience because it tells us things about our lives, you know? Like there's got to be a reason why we're so interested in being told love stories over and over again. (laughs) Well, um, Matilda Dixon-Smith, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about the Broken Heart Brigade. Uh, I will leave you with this one question. Um, Are there huge surprises in store? Um, And should I get my tissues at the ready because I only have very few left in my box and I just want to make sure that I'm fully prepared for any upcoming great upheavals in Trixie's world. Well, I think hopefully there'll be mostly happy tissues because I don't want to lead Trixie down too many dark pathways, but, you know, we can't all have a perfect life and there are definitely going to be surprises in store. But I should also just quickly say that I'm really quite lucky to have had a lot of support uh, from Melbourne City in in the work. So Melbourne as uh, Melbourne City of Literature Office gave me a commission at the very start of the work before I'd even started writing. And I just recently got a City of Melbourne grant for the project as well. So I'm very lucky to have that support and I just wanted to acknowledge that. It's really great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Matilda. Thanks for having me. 
That's right, now it's time for Comfort Reads and Meet Us for Launch. Today on Comfort Reads, I'm still reading Gabriel Garcia Marquez's Love in the Time of Cholera. I'll be sharing my insights over the next couple of weeks as we slowly emerge from quarantine. If you've been joining me in reading Marquez's much-referenced classic, post your reading journey on Instagram, tag me at backstoryrrr, and hashtag love in the time of backstory. Or email me your thoughts to backstoryrrr at gmail.com. I'll be sharing my reflections and your comments in a couple of weeks' time. Look forward to hearing from you. Our meters for launch today is Karen Turner's Stormbird. Set in Yorkshire in 1941, Stormbird tells the story of an unexpected relationship between a British war widow and a German fighter pilot shot down and in hiding despite their country's bitter differences. For Karen, creating a wartime Britain meant reliving some of the tales told to her by her mother and grandmother. Karen writes, My grandmother drove an ambulance around Leeds during the bombing raids. It was incredibly full on. Everyone pitched in, and I've tried to involve that in the story of Stormbird. Karen Turner's Stormbird is out now. If you'd like to send me a short piece or voice memo for comfort reads or meet us for launch, email me at backstoryrrr at gmail.com. Or tag your love in the time of cholera reading experience on Instagram at backstory RRR, hashtag love in the time of backstory. And that's all we have time for today on Backstory. I'd like to thank my guests, Pip Williams, author of the Dictionary of Lost Words, and Matilda Dixon-Smith, author of the serial The Broken Heart Brigade. Our comfort reads and welcome to launch theme song is Welcome to the Bunker Baby by Nicola Watson. You'll find her album on Bandcamp. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.